0: chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 1 down through 11, 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 11, so find that and put something there, and that's where we're going to be reading, but also turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 22. We ask that you might send your spirit to be with us today as we gather this morning, as we have gathered in your name, as you've brought us together, as you've guided our feet and our steps, as you do with everything in our lives, as you do with everything in your creation. But we ask, Lord, this morning as we gather together that you would be with us by your spirit, that you would teach us, that you would encourage us, that you would edify us, Father, that you would give us the enabling to worship and praise you. (coughs) Father, that you might give us eyes to see the glory that is Christ Jesus, that we might have the experience of knowing the love of Christ in our heart. Lord, that you might give us all that we have need of today to worship, to proclaim your name, to glorify you, to worship you, Uh, In truth, to worship you in spirit, or not in the flesh, because we know that the flesh fails. We know that the flesh can do nothing good, but we worship you, Lord, in the spirit, in perfection. We worship you through the gospel. And Father, we just ask that today that you might glorify yourself. That you might glorify yourself before all men, those watching, those listening, those here today that you might make yourself known, that you might reveal yourself. Give us something today, Lord, that we may not have understood before, that you might grow us in the grace and knowledge of yourself. And Father, Lord, we just ask that you just might uh, grant to us today even some uh, consolation, uh, some uh, uh, grace to know of your salvation, to know of your uh, forgiveness that we just sang about, to know of your uh, taking on uh, our sin, the imputation of your righteousness. May we learn of that today and that may we uh, find joy and peace and comfort in it. I ask you to be with these brethren that are here, Lord, that you might open up their understanding, that you might draw them To yourself, draw them near to you, Lord, by your word. Lord, I pray for any of your elect that may be among us that have yet to be converted. I ask, Lord, that you would give them repentance to acknowledging of the truth, that you might draw them to yourself, Lord, that they might confess you before men, that they might be baptized, that they might be part of the church. Lord, I pray for those that are in this town. I ask, Lord, that if there is any mourners of Zion that are in this city, Lord, we pray that you would, by your providence, by your predestination, that you might bring them our way, that you might bring us into contact with them, that they might find a haven of rest here uh, to be able to fellowship and to rejoice in the things of Christ Jesus, who is their rest. Lord, I thank you for all that you've done. We thank you for the word of God that you've given us And Lord, I ask now that you might enable me, help me, Lord, to expound the things that are here. Uh, And Lord, that you just might uh, bless it. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 5, we're going to be looking at these uh, 11 verses, and then we're going to be looking at uh, also some verses in Luke uh, that I'll get to here in just a second. But I just wanted to mention by way... of context on all of this is the fact that one of the biggest problems of our flesh, one of the biggest sins, I guess I should say, of our flesh is the sin of pride. And with that being said, we look at ourselves, we look at our history, we look at the beginning of time we look at before uh, Adam fell or when Adam fell before Adam fell I guess I should say uh, we find pride pride is the root of uh, almost every sin just about um, we find that pride is prevalent in uh all that we think, all that we do. I mean, you think about us as Americans. We have pride in who we are. We talk about ourselves, that we should pride ourselves in hard work and providing for ourselves, making something for ourselves, not depending upon anybody else, although that's become a far unknown thing in our culture and society today here in America. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with working hard. The Bible teaches us to work hard and to provide for our own. Take care of our own, and to not uh, be dependent on others or at the hands of others, uh, which we often are. Um, but a lot of times we become prideful in that, thinking that we can do it all. We can have what it takes. We we uh, we can uh, we can do anything, and we're very prideful people. But when we think back, it was pride that caused Satan to rise up as an angel of God, and. Uh, proclaim himself to take over the throne of God and and to be higher than God. It was pride that was in Adam that thought that he could be like God and that he could disobey God's command and just say, you know, hey, I know God said this, but, you know, if I can be like God, then I'm going to go ahead and do this. Half God really said, he listened to the lie of the devil who himself in pride was kicked out of heaven Because of his pride. And so we see that pride is something that is in all of us. We don't want to admit when we're wrong. Why? Because we're prideful. We don't want to be corrected by somebody else. Why? Because we think we know more than them. We don't want to admit that we're sinful because we are proud and want other people to think that we're not sinners. That we're righteous. We have pride whenever somebody talks about us or the same thing about us. Why? Because we think that we are better than we really are. We think that we have to portray something to other people more than we are. So pride is at the heart of almost every lust of of, of almost everything. You think about the lust of the eyes whenever we lust for other things. I want this. Why? Because the pride of life says I deserve that. I think that I ought to have that. That's something that I want. I don't have it and I should have it. That's pride. The lust of the flesh. Whenever I want something, I desire a man or a woman whenever they lust against each other. What is that? I don't have that. I want that. It's pride. I think that I should have that. Pride thinks that I can have that. Pride is in the mix of all that we do. It is in the flesh and it, brethren is strong in all of us. And not one of us is exempt from that. Every one of us has the problem of pride. The Bible speaks very, very, very often of pride. The Bible says that pride cometh before the fall. And what that means is someone who is proud, someone who is haughty, Someone who thinks they are above it all. That always comes before the fall. Your flesh is always going to show who you truly are. The Bible says, be sure your sin will surely find you out. You think that you can portray yourself as not needy, not fleshly, not sinful, not ignorant, not why? I mean, not uh, foolish, not all this. You think, whatever the, the subject is, you think that you are can rise above it or you're not that in the flesh? Be sure your sin will surely find you out. It will point you out. It will show you. It will reveal and manifest you as sure as the day is long, just like it did with Adam. Adam, it looks like on the outside, was upright man who was... Just had no nothing there, but sin lied within him. And it wasn't until God's law of "Don't eat that," you can eat of everything, but don't eat of that, that the pride welled within him, the lust conceived and brought forth sin. In in Satan, we see the same thing. The Bible said until sin was found in him, he was a angel, glorious, bright. But when sin was found in him, he rose up and said, I can be higher than God. I can raise myself above God. And see, we think those same things. We think that we can escape sin. We think that we can escape God's judgment. We can think we can escape uh, the consequences of our sins. But the Bible says, be sure your sin will surely find you out. And listen, Satan knowing that because he himself is the father of all lies. Deception. The Bible says that he is the father of all lies, that he is the uh, the surplanter, he is the, uh, uh, the accuser of the brethren. Listen, not only is he the one who initially believed the lie that he could be like God or above God, but now he's telling it. He told it to Adam, he tells it to us. He whispers in our ear. You try to be like God. And if He can't get us that way, He does the exact opposite. He says, you're never good enough. God's not going to love you. God's not going to accept you. God's not going to forgive you. Look how often you sin. The Bible says that He is the accuser of the brethren. And so we have quite a thing to deal with whenever we are dealing with pride when we're dealing with sin. And brethren, all of us are guilty. Not one of us is exempt. Every one of you in here today have this problem, just like I do. But yet we see something that takes place in God's Word to give us consolation of this if we are Christ's children. Now I want to begin reading in Luke chapter 22 to give us a backdrop Of what we're fixing to read that Peter writes by the Holy Spirit in his epistle. So let's start in Luke chapter 22. And I'm going to start reading in verse 23. Now, remind, let me remind you, this is right after Christ instituted the Lord's Supper. It was before he went into Gethsemane to pray. Before his arrest, before his crucifixion. So right after they had the Lord's Supper, they communed with Christ. Christ spoke to them of the things of the kingdom, explained to them the gospel and the elements that he gave them to partake of the institution of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper and how He told them to take the bread and the wine and to commemorate or remember His death because His body was broken for them. His blood was shed for them. He preached the gospel in that ordinance. That's why we continue those ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper is because it preaches the gospel in visual form to others. It reminds us of what Christ does. And right after Christ instituted this great ordinance with the blood and the uh, with the blood and the and the flesh being represented in the in the ordinance there, we have this, verse 23, and they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. And there was also strife among them. Which of them should be accounted the greatest? Here we see, if you remember, right before he instituted the Lord's Supper, Jesus knelt down and washed the feet of every one of those disciples. Save Judas. He didn't do Judas. Judas had already left. He knelt down and he washed their feet. Here Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, Subjected himself to washing the dirty feet of his disciples. Making himself subservient. Making himself submissive to them. Taking on the dirty task of washing their feet. I mean, all of us, unless you're some sort of a weirdo that just likes feet, but most of us and most people look at feet as probably the ugliest parts of the body. Yeah feet, you know, nobody wants to mess with people's feet, touch people's feet it's the most uncommonly part of people's bodies, is the feet it's stuck in a shoe it's most, It's usually most dirtiest because it's always sweaty and if we walk outside without shoes it gets dirty I mean, it, Jesus and, and you think about back then, they didn't have nice shoes like we have today okay uh, their shoes didn't keep their feet from being nasty Like ours does today is, as, even though we still have nasty feet, but we're talking about they walked on their roads. They wore sandals. If they did have covered shoes, it was some sort of a cloth or some sort of a leather wrapped up. Their feet was nasty and Jesus washed their feet. And right after that, seeing God wash their feet, There was strife among them. Which of them should be counted the greatest? Pride. Well, who who among us is the greatest? Listen, we still see that in today's Christianity. Christians trying to make themselves better than other Christians. Pumping themselves up over other Christians. We see it flooded throughout Facebook. Christians running other Christians down. Preachers being put on pedestals. Other preachers putting down other preachers because they want to make themselves look better. Trying to make ourselves who looks better and all it is is pride. Look at verse 25. And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is the great, is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he that is chief, as he that doth serve. For whether is greater he that sitteth at meat or he that serveth? Is not he that sitteth at meat? But I am among you as he that served. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. And I appoint unto you a kingdom as my father hath appointed unto me. That ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon. See, right after he said this, he said, "Everybody, all of you needs to beware of this thing. You need to keep in mind that you need to be a servant. The greatest that is among you, to be great in the kingdom of God, is not to be prideful and think yourselves more highly than you ought. To be great in the kingdom of God is to be subservient one to another. To think of yourselves lower than everybody else. And if you think about it, brethren, if you think that you are lower and undeserving more than anybody else, if that's truly the, 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 the disposition that God gives you, if that is who you are, then you will gladly serve one another because you think that they are worthy more than you are. Why do I do things for my family? Why? Because I love them. And I think they're worthy to be given things, do things, cherish whatever good things that I give to my kids, whatever wisdom that I try to pass on, whatever fun that I want to have with those things I do. Why? Because I love them and I want to serve them in that way. And Jesus, who is God, is saying that I have now done that to you now that should be your example to do with others. You look at yourself as the servant because pride can rear itself up and in your heart it can think, make you think that you're higher than you ought. And whenever you think that you are higher than you ought, you are most easily susceptible to the fiery darts of Satan. Because pride cometh before a fall. Pride comes Right before the fall, whenever you think yourself to be at your best, that's whenever God's gonna humble you. He's gonna, He's gonna knock you down. And so he says that and immediately he turns to Peter, who if we know anything from the Gospels, we know that Peter was pretty much the leader of the Apostles. He was kind of the number one guy. He kind of was the take charge guy. He was the grab it and go guy. He was the go to. He was part of the three that Jesus always, Peter, James, and John. Those were the ones that Jesus took. Above all the other disciples, He always took Peter, James, and John with Him to do all of His special things. Almost as if He favored Peter, James, and John more than the rest. But He took Peter, James, and John but Peter would seem to always be the leader. And Peter was very prideful, very boastful, very boisterous. And he turns to Peter and says, Simon, Simon, that's Peter's name, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Now notice that. It says, Satan hath desired To have you. That tells us. Jesus is telling us. That Satan. Not only is he real. But Satan actually does desire. To do bad. To people. Satan does desire. To do certain things. With certain people. Here Peter was. Among many people. And yet Jesus is saying. Satan has desired you Peter. Specifically. To sift you. Now what does it mean by sift you as wheat? <clears throat> this is winnowing. In the Bible you'll hear the term winnower's fork or winnowing. It's an old term. We don't hardly know that anymore. But it's a it's a term that whenever you winnow you separate the wheat and the chaff. To sift it. You might take like you, you've seen in like gold rush and stuff like that. Where they put all that stuff in and they'll sift it all out and all the... Fine sediment will settle out and all the big stuff will stay on top and everything will... All the junk will fall out and all the pure gold will stay in there. Or in the wheat they'll take and they'll sift that wheat and all the fine stuff will go through and all the bad stuff will stay on top. They clean it out. You see your moms and your grandmas, that what do they do with their wheat sometimes or with their flour sometimes? They'll put that flour... And they'll shake it through a sieve and that flour will become real fine. They're, they're, they're sifting it. They're sifting that flour, separating it. And it says here that, the, that Satan wants to sift you as wheat. It wants, to, it wants to shake you up and see if there's anything provable in you. See if there's anything good. See if there's any validity to who you think you are, Simon. You're a pretty proud man. You said, hey, you know, I'm going to follow the Lord. And he's been the in charge guy all this time. Satan wants to sift you. Now, notice a couple of things. Satan did sift Peter, right? We're fixing to read it here. But Satan did sift Peter. And God allowed it. That was God's will that Satan sift Peter. It was God's will that Peter do what he did is we're fixing to read. Keep that in mind, that nothing happens outside of God's will. Nothing happens outside of God's determination. So we see here that Satan wanted to sift Peter as wheat. But notice if you would, and pay close attention to this word here, because we're going to see it again in our passage in Peter. Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not and when thou art converted strengthen thy brethren. Now notice here he prayed that his faith fail not and when thou art converted whenever thou art turned whenever thou art repented strengthen thy brethren. Now Jesus never promised that he was going to keep him from the sifting. The sifting was going to come. But he said, after it's over, I've prayed that your faith would not fail. Now, did Peter sin? Yes, he did. So, did that mean Peter's faith failed? No, it didn't. For faith to fail means to cease in trusting Christ. Christ converted or repented Peter. His faith didn't go away. Yet the measure of his faith was held back for a season. But God always, always with his children will sustain them and keep them from falling away. Peter didn't fall away. He fell down but didn't fall away. Look what we see here. And he said unto him. Lord I am ready to go with thee. Both into prison and to death. Peter was ready to go. I am not going to. Lord. Let, the, let Satan come and do all he can. I'm going to go with you. Whether it be into prison. Or whether it be into death. Which by the way. Happened both with Peter. He did go to prison. And he was executed. He was crucified upside down. So Peter's pride welled up whenever Jesus said, Satan desires to sit thee. But I pray to thee that your faith fail not, but after you're converted. So God already told him he was going to fail. And that Satan was going to have his way, what seemed like his way, with Peter. And that Peter would need to be repentant or would be repented of. God would grant him conversion, repentance. And Peter's like, well, that ain't going to happen with me. How many of us are like that? How many of you young people, your parents say, watch this, watch out for that, don't do this, be careful of this. Oh, that ain't going to happen to me. Yet to find out it happens to you. All of us are like that. And so he says, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. And he said to them, When I sent you without purse and script and shoes, lacked ye anything? And they said nothing. Then said he unto them, But now he that hath the purse, let him take it, and likewise his script, And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you that this is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. Now, if you'll turn just over a page or so, we'll see what happened here. In verse 54, Jesus is now arrested. It says, Then they took him and led him and brought him into the high priest's house, and Peter followed afar off. And when they had kindled... The fire, Now, granted, hey, listen, this happened just shortly after this conversation where Peter puffed himself up and said, Hey, I'm going to go with you no matter where. Matter of fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, whenever they came to even arrest Peter, Peter was the one who drew the sword and cut off the ear of mal- uh, Malchus. Mal-, mal Malchus, always forget his name. Cut off the guy's ear, the soldier's ear. And then Jesus picked it up and put it back on him and healed him. Peter was ready to go. I'm not, nobody's going to make me do anything. I'm going to follow you all the way to death. This is just a few hours after that. Peter followed afar off. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and were set down together, Peter sat down among them. But a certain maid, that's a young girl, beheld him as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said, This man was also with him. And he, Peter, denied him, saying, Woman, I know him not. So a little girl comes over and says, You're one of the ones that was with him. He says, I don't know that man. Just a few hours after he said, I'm going to go with you to prison and go to death, after he cut off the ear of Malchus and said, You know, hey, nobody's going to take you. Nobody's going to, you're not going to the cross. Remember, he even said that to Jesus. Jesus told him that the hands of wicked men were going to take you. And and Peter said, no, I'm not going to let that happen. That's whenever Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. And he denied him, saying, woman, I know him not. And after a little while, another saw him and said, thou art also of them. And Peter said, man, I am not. Twice, Peter's denied that he knew Jesus. And about the space of one hour, after another confidently affirmed, saying, Of a truth, this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter said, Man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately, while he yet spake, the cock crew. Now, in other in the other Gospels, and I can't remember off the top of my head which one it was, the, the Bible says that he even swore with curses. With cursings. He cursed. You know? I don't know that bleepity bleep man. You know? I mean, in today's society, it may have been F.U. I don't know that G.D. person. You know? He was adamant, saying, I don't know, three times. Exactly as Jesus said. Now, was Jesus a fortune teller? Did Jesus look ahead in the future to see what Peter by his will would do? No, that was God's predetermined plan that that Peter would do that. It was his purpose. God has purposed the sifting of his people. Why? That they might learn from that. See, and and we're going to get into this. This may be a two-parter, but we're going to get into this. There is a purpose in our affliction in the flesh to be shown our infirmity in sin and why God has left us in sin. God has not removed us in sin and these people that have the notion that we're becoming more holy and holy and holy without sin, that we're sinning less and less and less and less, is deceived because God uses the sin of the flesh of His people to chastise His people. And the reason that He chastises His people is because He loves His people. And He loves His people and He does that by revealing Himself to His people. And how does He reveal Himself? In the Gospel. And what is the Gospel? You are sinners, but I am your Savior. You cannot do nothing to gain my acceptance, but you have been accepted in the Beloved. The Gospel is about Christ loving us as sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Though we were enemies or at enmity with God, God loved us, God shed His grace upon us, God chose us from the foundation of the world to be imputed by the righteousness of Christ Jesus that we would be before, be before Him in love. But yet we still, in Adam, in our flesh, we are enemies of God, prideful, thinking that we can be as God. And so people that think that our sin should be something that should be eradicated and and that we should be getting more and more holy and less and less sinful, it's crazy because God is using that actual battle or warfare between the flesh and the spirit to keep our minds set on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's doing with Peter. Peter, Satan desires to sift you and I'm going to let him. Because whenever I let Satan do this, something is going to be shown to you and is going to help you to show other people something. We'll see that here in a minute. But Peter said, Man, I know not that thou sayest. And immediately while he yet spake, the cock crew. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. I can only imagine how Peter felt after, with cursings, denied Jesus Christ. And listen, Peter loved the Lord. He loved the Lord. He followed the Lord. The Lord had called him. He was saved. He had been quickened of the Holy Spirit. He had spiritual eyes. He had spiritual desires. But yet he failed. As do we all. All the people of God. We don't claim to be perfect. None of us are perfect. We still sin. We still battle with that. anybody's listening, watching here today, and you think that a Christian is somebody who doesn't sin, that's not what this is all about. (laughs) This isn't about that. This is about, though we are sinners, we don't look to ourselves for hope in getting better, but we look to Christ who is perfect for us and that He has by free grace given us that righteousness. Peter saw Jesus look at him and immediately Peter knew exactly what Jesus said came true. Now turn with me if you would to 1 Peter chapter 5. We now see the backdrop because the very same man who failed who denied Christ three times with cursings denied. After just a few hours of sitting at the table and watching that God lower himself to the place of washing his dirty, nasty feet. And telling him that I've prayed for you that your faith would fail not. Of telling them in the gospel, I've given my body to the smiters, I've given my back to the ones who's going to flog me to death. He's going, well, not to death. He's going to flog me to almost death. He's going to nail me to a cross. And then I'm going to die. I've given my body for you. My broken body, my shed blood, I've given for you. And now me, the one who's going to do all that for you, I'm going to wash your feet. Peter denies him. How often, brethren, have we, and I can speak for myself a lot, how often have we sinned and we've indulged in whatever we know is wrong? As soon as we do, it's as if the Lord looks immediately at us and we know. And the weight of that sin comes upon us. The Bible says that if we sin, if we confess our sin, He is faithful, just, and will forgive us of our sin. This is the Peter who is writing this epistle. This is the Peter who is now writing to the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and through the sanctification of the Spirit under obedience and the sprinkling of blood of Jesus Christ. This is the one who is writing to all the people of God, whether it be those who were scattered during that time period or by the preservation of the Holy Spirit, this Word of God to us today, all of us who are of like faith. Peter's writing. This is what he says. Look at verse 1, chapter 5. The elders which are among you I exhort... Who am also an elder? Peter saying, I'm also an elder. Which he was. He was an elder in the church. Okay, this isn't talking about an older person. Okay, This isn't talking about an old person. He's talking to the elders. Those who are the ones who preach the gospel. Who are been called to proclaim the gospel within the local church. Amongst the people of God. Okay, They're called elders. That's why we call are pastors and teachers elders. Why? Because they're the ones who God has called to preach and to have the oversight uh in the congregation. We're called elders. We're not called reverends, by the way. Reverend is not a title that is be given to man. And all those that are out there to you call yourself reverend, you need to stop. Because there's only one who is to be revered, and that's God. It says, the elders which are among you, I exhort. So he's exhorting the, the elders, the preachers, the pastors. He's exhorting them because he himself is an elder. And he says, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. So he's saying, listen, I am like you. I have not only partaken of the, the grace, partaken of the glory that shall be revealed, but I am a witness to Christ's suffering. Now, brethren, we haven't seen Christ suffer on the tree, but we have seen it revealed in Scripture. We have seen it through the word of God. We have seen the suffering of Christ on our behalf. The gospel has shown us, just like with Abraham, the the gospel was preached to Abraham and the Bible says, and Abraham saw him afar off. He saw Christ afar off. What does that mean? He said, by the preaching of the gospel, he he saw Christ and what Christ did for him afar off. Even though it hadn't happened yet, he saw it. And even though it happened a long time ago and we don't actually see it, Peter actually seen it, We see and partake of the sufferings and behold the sufferings of Christ through the Gospel. So he says, I exhort you elders, those who have experienced the sufferings of Christ and are partakers of the glory that shall be revealed, feed the flock of God which is among you. And I exhort all the preachers that are listening. That is your... Highest and chiefest duty is to proclaim the Word of God, to proclaim Christ, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not about our hobby horses. It's not about all the debates and arguments around the world. It's not about creeds and confessions and commentaries. It's not about uh, an evangelistic program building thing. It's not about, it's about preaching Christ. We are to preach Christ. Feed the flock of God which is among you. We are to feed them. How do you feed the flock of God? Well, you feed them with the food that that nourishes them, which is the Gospel. It is the preaching of Christ and Him crucified. It is the preaching of grace. It is the preaching of Christ's substitutionary work. It's the preaching of Christ's imputed righteousness. It's the preaching of grace over law. It's the preaching that we have been given life, that we have been given salvation, not according to our works, but according to what He has done. That's what feeds the flock. But whenever we start preaching other things, the sheep, the true sheep. Now the goats who are among the sheep, the the tares which are among the wheat, they like that kind of food. And they'll, they'll eat it up. But brethren, the sheep, it won't feed them. And he's saying, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. That's one of the jobs of the pastor. That's one of the things that the elder, the pastor does. They take the oversight. What does that mean? Does that mean that we're your bosses? That we're in charge of everything? That we that we are to uh, be the CEO of the church? No. The Bible says that we are not to lord it over. Not to command over the Lord's heritage. But we're to take the oversight. We're to keep watch. To make sure that the flock is being fed correctly. That the the flock is being fed the right food. That they're being warned, hey, don't eat that. Okay? Don't eat that. That's not good food. That'll kill you. That'll make you sick. We take the oversight. Among the the people of God, we're the ones that kind of help keep the order, but we're never, 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 never the ones who are to lord it over, the church. It says, not by constraint, but willingly. See, we're never to come into God's pulpit. We're never called to be preachers by constraint. If anybody tries to get you to be a preacher, listen, I know and I've seen it, and I've even felt the pressure of it growing up. in in a household where my grandpa was a preacher and had uncles that were preachers and and cousins that were preachers and and friends that were preachers. Listen, you feel the compulsion to, you know, well, I'm just naturally going to be a preacher too. You know? And maybe at some point, before I was converted, I thought that's why I was going to be a preacher is to follow in the footsteps to be like my grandpa. But listen, we're never, never, never follow after that because of constraint. But we're to do it because God has called us that He has given us the desire to will and to do that. It says, not for filthy lucre, but for a ready mind. So here, Peter is taking the knowledge that God has given him and the experience that God has given him, and he's passing it on to the other elders among all these people, among all these flocks, and he's saying, listen, feed the flock of God, take the oversight, watch the doctrine that is being preached, be strong in the doctrine, because it's very important that they know the gospel, and we're gonna to get to why, we're gonna to get to why. I know this is long, this introduction is, which is the introduction, this introduction is long, but we need to understand why Peter was sifted, Why Christ allowed that or predestinated that to happen. And why Peter now is doing what he is doing. Remember, Jesus said, when thou art converted, strengthen the brethren. Peter, after he done what he did, after he denied Christ, if you remember after Christ rose from the dead, Christ came to Peter and He told him that He loved him. And He told told him, he asked him, he said, Peter, do you love me? And he said, I love you. He asked him three times. He had him ask, say it three times. Why? Because he denied him three times. He asked him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And he said, Lord, thou knowest that I love you. Do people that love the Lord sin against the Lord? Absolutely they do. To commit sins... is in our flesh but in our spirit we love the lord and desire never to sin we desire never to do unrighteousness we desire never to let down or to as I let down to never transgress our savior and so peter here now has went through that god has reinstated him and said if you love me feed My sheep. Three times. If you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. And here, Peter is turning and saying to the other elders, I was sifted by Satan. I denied Christ. I felt the weight of my sinfulness, how low I could go. Listen, looking upon a woman to lust, taking a little something that wasn't mine, Lying just a little bit here and there, all of that is bad things. But listen, I did the lowest of low, saving what Judah. Well, matter of fact, it's no more different than what Judas did. The difference is, is Judas wasn't an elect child of grace; he was a reprobate. And here, Peter, he denied Jesus the same way. Judas went and he betrayed Jesus give Jesus up, told people where he was at and ultimately denied Jesus. But here Peter denied Jesus outwardly saying, I don't know him. I don't know him. Why? He did that to keep from getting arrested. He was afraid of being arrested. He was to be afraid of being uh, known as a Christian. Be known as a disciple. As an apostle. He was to be, uh, afraid to be uh, uh linked with this man who was now in trouble with all the religious leaders. So really not much different than what Judas did, but yet God granted repentance to Peter. And now Peter, as Jesus said, when you have been converted or when you have been turned, said, feed my sheep. And he told him over and over again, feed my sheep. And now he's telling us as elders, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, not for, not for money, not for gain, not for personal position. We're not to preach to make ourselves look good. Some preachers want to preach so that they might look good. So they might be the great preacher in the associations or the conventions that are out there. They want to preach among men to be known. You know, they want to be the, the, the men on TV and the radio that everybody hears. Or on Facebook, they want to be the Facebook theologian that everybody goo-goos and gaga's over. But if you do it for that, it's filthy lucre. If you do it for money, Listen, that's a that's one thing I see today at all these so-called churches that are out there is preachers preaching, and they they won't preach. They they won't go and and listen. I'm not saying this just by yeah. You know, I actually know specific examples people who have said, you know, I can't come preach unless you give me so much money. I know singers that say I can't come sing for you. The gospel unless you give me so much money. This is how much it costs for me to come sing for you. I stood it for filthy lucre. If a preacher says, I can't preach the gospel to you unless you can guarantee me this much money, then you're in it for the wrong reason. You're a hireling. And Peter is saying, listen, if you're coming with any other motive than providing and exhorting and encouraging and edifying the flock of Jesus Christ by providing them good food. If you're coming for any other reason than to be subservient to one another, to serve them. That's what I'm doing here today. I'm not here to lord over you. I'm here to serve you. What am I serving? I'm serving you sheep food. (coughs) It's a service. A pastor, an elder is a servant of the church Not a leader or a ruler over the church. And any time that I'm doing that, I pray that the Lord would bring me to my knees on that. I pray that you would be kind enough to say, Hey, you need to step back a little bit. You're trying to take charge over everybody. And I pray that I'm doing just the opposite. I pray that I'm feeding the flock of God willingly and of a ready mind. It says, Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And verse 4 says, When the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Now here we go. This is kind of getting into really what I want to talk about. It says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Now, what does it mean, younger? Does it mean talk about children? Oh, what does he mean? He's meaning those younger in the faith. Submit yourself to the elder in the faith. Okay, he just talked about the elders who are the ones preaching, feeding the flock. Now he says, as the preacher is subservient to Jesus Christ to be the overseer, to feed the flock with the words of God and to serve them Likewise, ye who are younger in the faith, you serve the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. Humility is the opposite of pride. See, I started this off with talking about pride because pride is one of our biggest problems. But to be in the service of Christ Jesus, it takes humility. Humility. Because you can't serve Christ because in serving Christ means you're serving one another. You're serving each other. And to serve one another, you can't be prideful. Now brethren, I I say all that knowing that we can only be humble and have humility if God grants it and gives it to us. It isn't something I can work up in my flesh. Humility is something that the Spirit does and works on the inside. It's one of the works of God that He does inwardly. But this is by way of example and showing this is what we need, this is how you need to understand these things. That humility is the opposite of pride. To serve one another. And, as we'll see here in a minute, to know yourself, you have to be humble. You have to be humbled. He says, Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. God resisteth the proud. God is against the proud. Proud. Why? Because God said, I am God and there is no other. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And I will not share my glory with another. Meaning that no one else is going to have the glory of God himself. But what does pride always tell us? That we are good enough. That we are better. That we can do it. We are the ones. We have all the righteousness that we need if we'll just buckle up ourselves and and hang in there. We strive and do hard work to, to obey Christ and then we'll have this righteousness that God will be pleased with. listen, Humility is knowing that in me there is no good thing. That oh wretched man that I am. It is only Christ that is worthy. God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Matter of fact, the very fact that somebody is humble is the fact that God has given them grace. He's given them grace to be humble because by nature we are prideful. And so he says in verse 6, look at it with me. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. Or humble yourselves or consider yourselves low in light of the mighty hand of God. That he may exalt you in due time. Why is Peter saying that? Because Peter, his pride was paramount. Lord, I'm going to follow you to prison all the way to death. Lord, they're not going to take you. Here's my sword. I'm going to defend you. You're going to the cross by wicked hands. They're going to take you? Nuh-uh. Not as long as I'm here. I'll fight for you. I'll follow you wherever you go. Pride was paramount. But what happened? The mighty hand of God humbled him. And how did He humble him? He humbled him by showing him his sinfulness. He showed him his, his pride. He showed him all this. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. Now we see Peter feeding the flock of God, being exalted as the elder of the church, not in a place of, 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 of prominence, but in the place of a servant. He is exalted as a servant. What did Jesus say that we read back there to those guys who wanted to know who was going to be the greatest? He said, who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom? The one who was the servant. The one who is the greatest in the kingdom is the least. The first shall be last and the last shall be first, Jesus always preached. If you remember, he said the ones who are greatest in the kingdom are the ones who are the servants. The ones who are humbled by the mighty hand of God and is serving one another in humility. Esteeming others more highly than himself. Looking upon others more than themselves, thinking of others more than they think of themselves. In love serving one another. And he says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Peter showed that the lesson of pride and humility of, of prominence and service of sin and service of sin and obedience is all by the hand of God. And he also seen that whenever God does show us these things and teaches his people. And it is God who teaches us. It's the spirit that teaches us. Peter didn't learn this lesson just out of hard knocks. Peter learned it through the hard knocks, but it was the Spirit who applied the knowing of it. How many times have you done something, and it took a few times before you learned to do that? You know, we always have that saying, you know, the kid does something, like the mom would say, well, you better stop him doing that, and and dad would say, well, he'll do it once, he'll learn, let him do it, you know. You sit there and you're taking and you're hammering the hammer and you hit yourself on the thumb. You know that hurts if you hurt hit your thumb. What are you gonna do from now on? You're gonna be a little bit careful how you hold that nail when you start hitting it. You're gonna tap 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 it through until it gets there and then you can nail it on in. Why? Because you learned from your sore thumb. Peter learned from his sore thumb. Peter learned from his experience his experience of being sifted, his experience of affliction, and therefore was able to turn around and be a servant, a humbled servant, to the flock of Jesus Christ. To be able to feed the flock of God, we must be humbled. And to be humbled, our pride must be shattered. And for our pride to be shattered, the mighty hand of God must come down. He says, verse 7, "...Casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you." Listen, whenever these seasons of testing and trying, of humbling come, the Lord cares for us. The Bible says that for His people, He says those that He loves, He chastens. He chastens those that He loves. He, He scourges those that He loves. Now what does that mean? Well, that means... That he takes us through and allows us to go through these seasons of affliction because he loves us. And how does he, how is he showing us love in that? Because it's teaching us. Not only is it teaching us who we are, but it continues, as I've been saying, to point us to Christ. We continue to see, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy. I'm a sinner. And therefore, we are constrained to see Christ alone. As our salvation, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. And, brethren, listen, he does care for us, he cares for you. So he says, Be sober, be vigilant. That be sober means to be mindful, it says to be alert. You know when someone's not sober, drunk, they're not alert, right? Somebody's drunk, have the time, they're stumbling around, falling around, their mind is blurred, they're not alert. It says be sober, be vigilant. When it means it says be vigilant, that means to be, you know, to to stand firm, to be watchful, to be vigilant means to. Keep watch. So he says, to have your mind right, to be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. There's that word may again. Remember I had you remember that word when we were talking about Peter being sifted? The Lord said, Satan hath desired that he may sift you. And now the Lord is telling us that the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It doesn't say whom he will devour. Have you noticed that? Has anybody ever noticed that? He says that whom he may devour. Satan cannot devour God's people can Satan sift them he surely can but he cannot devour see Satan goes around and I don't know whether or not Satan knows who the elect are or not I don't know that I don't know if he knows uh, if I'm a child of grace or not I'm sure he does but I don't know I don't know that but he goes around seeking whom he may devour. The only ones that he can devour are the reprobate. If you remember, Jesus said that, that those who are the reprobate are the ones who are the children of the devil. And the Bible says that they are <coughs> held captive at his will. To do his will. See, so the only one that Satan can devour is... Is the ones who are the reprobate? He can't devour the child of grace. The Bible says that whenever we are tempted, that we are tempted, and it's common to every man. Every man is tempted. Ain't nobody specially tempted more than another person. We're all tempted. But it said that with each temptation, that He has provided a way of escape. Now that doesn't mean that we're going to cease to sin. That's not what that's saying. The way of escape is not that he's going to cease to sin. He's provided a way of escape through Christ Jesus. The temptation is through Christ Jesus. Though we may be tempted and in our flesh we fail, Christ Jesus was tempted and he did not fall. And he is our substitute. His righteousness is given to us. We do not fail because Christ didn't fail. Whenever our sin in flesh does fail, we have an advocate with the Father. We have forgiveness of sins. We have justification. We have an imputation of righteousness that stands in our place before the judge. That word adversary there, your adversary the devil, That word adversary is a legal term that means someone who is there to point out the law. I mentioned a while ago that the Bible says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He stands before God accusing us before God telling God, look at your people. Look how sinful they are. He stands in front of us and accuses us telling look how holy he is and look how sinful you are. You can't imagine Him loving you. There's no way that He can save you. You're not good enough. You need to try harder. You need to keep this law. That word is a law term. That word adversary means somebody in a court of law who is there to uphold and to point out how the law has been broken. We have an adversary. Someone who is who is accusing us of breaking God's law. Someone who is accusing us and showing us our sinfulness, and he's accusing us before God. He's accusing us before ourselves. But what does it, what does it say here? It says, "Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he." Made of our. He may be our accuser. And what he says to God is most certainly true. We are sinners and we are transgressing God's law. And what he is telling us that we have sinned against God who is holy and that we are never good enough and that we cannot ever be saved in God's favor by what we've done and all these things. What he accuses us of is all the time true. But it's a lie that it's applicable to us. The lie is that it's applicable. He accuses us before God, but it's not applicable because when God views us, He doesn't view us as we are. He views us as Christ is. Whenever He accuses us to us as who we are, it's not applicable because we know that we are unworthy, but Christ is worthy. We have a substitute in our place. The substitute Christ Jesus comes between the adversary and the one that he is trying to devour. The one who is the, the one trying to take the law and to put the law over the person who has broken the law when the mediator comes in and says, listen, this person is not guilty because all of his debts have been paid. All of his fine has been paid. He is, the punishment for his crime has been paid. Therefore, he is not guilty. All the accusations, all the blame that you put on him cannot stick because he has a mediator who is taking care of that on his behalf. So the adversary, the roaring lion, cannot devour us because of what Jesus Christ has done. Are we going to feel the experience of that? Absolutely. Do we actually commit those sins that he's accusing us of? Absolutely. Do we feel the weight of our sin? Absolutely. And are we deserving of God's wrath on us because of that sin? Absolutely. But brethren, he can only accuse us. But we, the Bible says, have an advocate with the Father. There is only one mediator between God and man, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan is not our mediator. He's an adversary. He's a officer of the court that is making the law, you know, pointed out, but he is not our mediator. In our court systems, we have a defense attorney and we have a prosecuting attorney. The prosecuting attorney is there to take the law and to say this man's guilty. He has broken the law and this is how he's broken it. The defense attorney is there to turn around and defend that man saying that this man should not be held to this law because of this. And is trying to prove his innocence in the eyes of the judge that that law has not been broken on this man's account. Jesus is our advocate or our defense attorney. He is the one when the accuser, who is the prosecuting attorney, taking the law and saying they're guilty... And the judge see they're guilty, they're guilty, they're guilty, they're guilty. But our advocate is stepping forth and saying that sin has been paid for. That fine has been paid. That wrath that is deserving upon them has been paid. Therefore, my person is not guilty. Is not going to receive the just penalty for their sin. Why? Because He Himself took it for us. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. But the Gospel is the key. Look at verse 9. Whom resist? Who do we resist? Satan. The devil. The roaring lion. But how do we resist? If you watch TV and all the crazy preachers that's on TV, listen to them on the radio, what are they telling you to do? Oh, we we rebuked Satan or the demons. We rebuked them demons. You know? How do they do it? They tell them. You know, you watch Kenneth Copeland and guys like that, nut jobs. You watch them, what are they up there doing? They're pridefully, pridefully going up there and saying, you know, I command you, I bind you, I tell you what to do, you do, you can't do this because I tell you all that kind of junk. Listen. Listen, Satan is a roaring lion. And he can have his way with us any way he wants. What did he do to Job? He took all that Job had and took all of Job's health for the most part to the fact that he almost died. Satan is an adversary and he is a roaring lion and he is a powerful being. But he's still under God's control. But you're not him. We think we can control anything? You think by just you saying something to the devil he's going to do? No. We can't command the devil to do anything. It says resist. Whom resist steadfast in the faith. He didn't say resist with your faith. Although faith is part of what we do here. He didn't say I with my faith bind you Satan. No, he says, resist him. The Bible says, resist the devil and he shall flee. How do we resist the devil? How do we overcome the roaring lion? How do we overcome the fiery darts of the, of the of Satan? He says, whom resist steadfast in the faith? How do we resist? We, we resist in the faith. Now that definite article the is there before faith, so it means we resist him in the gospel. That's how we resist the devil. When the accuser comes to accuse us, how do we resist him? With the gospel. You're right. I am guilty. But I have a mediator with the Father. I have a I have the judge doesn't see me as me because I have a substitute. The judge doesn't look on me in my sin because all my sin was placed upon my advocate. The law was kept. You're saying that I broke that law, but I kept the law because all the law keeping that he did, he gave it to my account. How do we resist the devil? When the devil accuses us over and over and over again, we go to him and resist him with the gospel. We keep our mind on the gospel. By faith, we resist him in the faith. We resist him through the gospel. We we keep in mind that Christ is our substitute. That we cannot be accused before the Father anymore. The Bible says <clears throat> that who shall lay any charge to God's elect. Look 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 at that with me just real quick. I don't want to get too far off here because I'm way over, but look at that. Um I don't forget, where was that? Oh, here it is. Romans chapter 8. Verse 33, it says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is He that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, and who maketh intercession for us. When Satan comes to devour to sift us, to show us how sinful we are, we resist by the Gospel. Resist what? Resist falling in despair. Resist, resist thinking that we need to ramp up our righteousness. Whenever Peter was shown, when Christ looked at him, he didn't say, oh man, I better start getting better soon as Christ looked at him, he knew, I did what he said I was going to do. I am what he says I am. I am a sinner. I am incapable of being strong. I am incapable of being faithful. I am incapable of being uh, uh, dedicated. I am incapable of standing strong. Here I am. I thought I was the strongest of all the apostles and was going to be the The example for everybody. I want to take charge and be an example. here I am, the very one who before everybody else, I denied Him. But what did He do? He showed Him. So how did... How did Peter receive that? Well, whenever Jesus came to him, he didn't try to make excuses. Well, I just did that so I, you know, I gotta keep alive to keep the doctrine going, you know. If they would have killed me, you know, what would have happened with all the rest of the apostles? He didn't start making excuses. Whenever Jesus came to me, he said, do you love me? Peter said, I do love you. He said, no, feed my sheep. Preach them this gospel because they're gonna, they're gonna experience the same thing you did. Satan's going to come and want to devour them. Want to make them to despair. What did Peter do whenever he did that? He went and the Bible says he wept bitterly. He was in despair because he had he had went against his Savior, his friend. He had done something to hurt him. Matter of fact, he had denied him with curses. That How would you feel if you're one of your brothers or sisters in front of somebody as you were out in a group of people and Someone says something and they say, Well, ain't that your brother? And you're like, No, that ain't my brother. And you heard that. How would you feel inside if you heard one of your brothers or sisters denying you and saying, No, that's not my brother? Oh no, I don't even know them. Or how would you feel if you did that and as soon as you said that you seen your brother or sister look at you because they heard you? How would that make you feel? We'll ramp that up a thousand times because that's what happened with Peter and Jesus. But he didn't make excuses. He came and whenever Jesus preached the gospel to him, he said, Peter, I love you. Do you love me? He said, feed my sheep. He didn't say after a few bits of penance, after I run you down a little bit, after I put you on hold for a while. He said, no, feed my sheep. When you have been turned, whenever I have granted you repentance and you turn and you see how sinful and wrong and how unrighteous you are, whenever you turn and realize that you are not strong, he said, feed my sheep. Tell them the same thing. Tell them that they're not strong to look to me. To look to me. That's what Peter is now conveying to his brethren He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Why? Because there is a roaring lion, an adversary that is going to keep pointing out your faults and is going to try to continue to tempt you to sin. And whenever you fail and whenever you mess up and whenever you you break the law of God and whenever you transgress the law of God, he's going to accuse you before God. But he's not going to devour you because there is the gospel. Christ Jesus has died for you. He has forgiven you. He says, "...knowing that the same afflictions are accompanied in your brethren that are in the world." What does that mean? That means that all of us are experiencing the same thing. If we're a child of grace, we're all experiencing the same thing. Those people who who are never bothered by that sin and they think they're becoming more and more holy and sinning less and less and less and they just keep coasting on and they're never brought back into the depths of their sin and know the fullness of their sin and keep Always going before God saying, "Oh wretched man that I am, oh wretched man that I am. But pump up and say, I'm glad that you've not made me like that. Or I'm glad you've delivered me from being like that person or that person or that person. Those are the people that have not been given the grace of God, that have not been humbled under the mighty hand of God. They're still in their prideful sin. But those who have been humbled (coughs) know the same afflictions of our sin. The same afflictions of the accusations. We know the accusations are true, but we resist the fiery darts of the devil. In one section of Scripture, the Bible says to do that by taking upon the full armor of God, by taking the sword of the Spirit and the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, your feet shod with the gospel and your uh, loins girded up. And all that is like all these pieces of armor. And we think, well, oh yeah, we got to take God's word. Ha! We got to take, oh, the helmet of salvation and All of those things are pictures of Christ. The helmet of salvation is Christ, who is our salvation. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Who is the Word of God? Christ Jesus is is the Word of God. Who is the breastplate of righteousness? Christ Jesus, who is your righteousness. Have your feet shod with the Gospel. Who is the Gospel? Christ Jesus is the Gospel. The armor of salvation... The armor of the Lord is Christ. To resist the fiery darts of Satan is to take up Christ. Look to Christ. (laughs) Acknowledge Christ. Resist in the faith. We're probably going to change the title of that because that will be next week's title. But we'll stop right there. Next week we're going to look at verse 10 which I was really wanting to get to because it's the glorious answer to everything that we see today. So, anybody got any questions or comments? Went way long. Anybody? Father, we thank you once again for this day and we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the salvation that's through him. We thank you for the testimony of Christ today in these pages. And we ask, Lord, that you just might have the Spirit of God apply them to our heart. and you might teach us something of Christ. Through it, I pray it's been of encouragement and edification to your people. May you give them safety throughout this week until you gather us again uh, the next Lord's Day. And we ask it all in Christ's precious name. Amen.